Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Would you, uh, would you pray with me right now before the ministry of the word? Father, we do thank you for your grace to us and how it's displayed in our lives in so many different ways, and families and friends, a good church. Lord, the word itself is such a treasure that we have. And Lord, especially uh, that relationship that we have with Jesus. We thank you for this time of year, for all the joy that we uh, experience. Even in the midst of the hustle and bustle, Lord, if we can, we keep our eyes focused on you and we just find uh, all of that which, um, which is happening around us to be good and full of fun and full of life. Help us, Lord, to maintain that attitude. Help us to represent you, Lord, fairly to the world that we live in, that others might be drawn to you. And Lord, as we gather around your word now, we ask that you would do for us what we, we have come to almost expect, not in any way that's presumptuous, but just because of your faithfulness. We ask that you would speak to us through your word today. And Lord, um, for me, I simply want to be a, a channel through which you communicate to your people. Lord, may you, and you alone, may you be exalted, may you be glorified in our midst this day. And we ask it, all of it, in the name of Jesus, our wonderful Savior, Amen. So I, uh, I like doing puzzles, uh, picture puzzles. I haven't done one uh, in a long time now. There are just uh, so many other things that are going on, but I do enjoy them. I, I like the smaller puzzles, uh, not the 10-piece ones, not quite that small. Uh, I, I like the 250 to 500-piece puzzles, you know, something you can do in an evening. And, of course, most people, when they put together a puzzle, they kind of go through and they pick out all the border pieces and put that together. And, and then they uh, start picking out the colors and patterns and separating those. And, and they begin filling in the center. And once you're done, you get to, to see the whole picture. Of course, we've already seen the picture because we have the box, and that's what helps us to put it together. It really does help immensely. So we've already seen it before we put the puzzle together, but it also looks great once we finally put that last piece in. But uh, it is conceivable that you could take a puzzle and never look at the picture and put it together. Um, and a puzzle aficionado, which I certainly am not, might even tell us that there are some puzzles that are sold that way. I mean, people often do like a challenge. And with such a puzzle, you really would have to put it together to see the picture. But what lies ahead for us this morning is, uh, is something a little bit different. We're going to be presented with a picture which we have to take apart in order to see it clearly, to understand it. And I'm talking about the vision that John the Apostle had on the island of 
Patmos, which he records for us in the book of the Revelation, the last book of the Bible. So I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles there in uh, chapter 1 of Revelation, or of course it should be up on the screen on either side of us. And so uh, to begin with, what happens in verse 9 is that John tells us a little bit about the circumstances that he was in when he wrote Revelation. And in doing so, he tells us really something about us. Now, we're not going to spend much time here, but I think the little bit of time we spend will be helpful to us. And so we read there, I... John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So now John hasn't said anything here about our geography. Uh, we're not on the island of Patmos, of course, but he has something said something about our family relationship. You see, we are his brothers and sisters. And it really doesn't matter that this was written a long time ago because because we belong to Christ, we are part of God's family, just as John was. And, and that's a family that reaches all the way back to the dawn of creation and that stretches out before us into the future. And in that family, there is God and God's children. There are no no other relations, and, and so we are all brothers and sisters. And in a different way, we are also John's companions. We're, we're not walking it with him, but we're traveling the same road that he traveled. And that road, that companionship is one road. It's, it's one thing which is described by these three words, suffering, kingdom, and patient endurance. So as believers, we will experience a a certain amount of suffering. Um, We really don't know how intense that's going to be, but we can certainly expect it. We're not talking here about the the misery that's common a lot of all humankind, but but we're talking about that which comes, as John tells us, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John was exiled on Patmos because of that. And for us, so far in this country, what we are experiencing is small. In other parts of the world, though, um, really, uh, the persecution is intense. And yet it all comes in all its different forms because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And we are also now, as we sit here and as we go about our lives, we're part of the kingdom of God, which really is a never-ending kingdom. So the, the kingdom of God is here and now because he rules in the hearts of his people. And one day he's going to establish that kingdom here on earth and it will fill the whole earth and he'll abolish all evil. And we're part of that kingdom for the same reason we suffer, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And for the same reason, we have the patience to endure whatever may uh, have to come our way, because Jesus gives us the strength. He's walked that road before us, and he walks it with us now. So in writing to the seven churches, 
John really is also writing to us. And, and the book of Revelation um, is a difficult book. It, it's been said, whether truthfully or not, that uh, 90% of the cults uh, find their doctrinal roots in a misinterpretation of that book. Now, there is much in this book that we don't understand, but I, I believe that when the time comes that we should understand it, that those passages that are dark to us right now will come to light and we'll know. But even though there's a lot that we don't understand, there is much more that we do understand, or we can, uh, as we prayerfully apply ourselves to study this book. So... There's a vision that uh, really gets everything moving in the book of Revelation. And John had that vision, again, as I said, while he was on the island of Patmos. And it was a Sunday. And he was worshiping. And he was in the spirit when he heard a loud voice like a trumpet behind him. And in verse 11 we read, right on a scroll, what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then John turned around to see who was speaking to him. And that's when he has this spiritual encounter. And what we want to do this morning is we want to see what that vision means. Uh, that's a question we're going to try to answer today. What does this vision mean to us? And, and, and I think what we're going to see here is it's going to help us to understand, at least in part, um, the relationship between pastors and churches and sermons or messages and our Lord. So, so we're going to begin trying to understand this. And so when you, when you read this account, uh, here, this vision, if you've done that recently, the first thing you notice is that it really centers around one figure, and that person is Jesus Christ. And so John spends about seven verses here describing the figure he saw. He tells us what the person looked like, and he tells us about his clothing, and he, he tells us what he was doing. It's not until verse 18, however, that we uh, know who the figure really represents. It's been hinted at earlier, but in verse 18, we learn for certain just who this person is when John writes, quoting him, I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. Now that statement can apply to only one being, Jesus Christ. He is the living one. He was the one who had died and is alive forevermore. And Jesus Christ is the one who can set people free from death and from the power of evil. And so Jesus Christ is the central figure in this vision. And everything in the vision really revolves around him. Now, if you'll bear with me, what I want to do next is I, I want to read to you John's description of what he saw beginning in about the middle of verse 13. So we read this. This figure was dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword, and his 
face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. Now that was John's attempt at describing what he saw. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I find it difficult to put that picture together of what he's describing in my own mind. I have seen, and maybe you have too, um, uh, artist renderings of that picture. I've seen pictures uh, that is that people have drawn, and, and they saw someone standing there, some of them with a sword kind of dangling from his mouth. And, and quite frankly, they look to me simply... Uh, and utterly ridiculous. They're almost an embarrassment, and sometimes I wish they'd never been drawn, or at the very least, I wish that I'd never seen them. But while we might be embarrassed uh, by those depictions, that's certainly not the emotion that John felt when he saw that vision. John was overwhelmed with the glory of what he saw, and so we read in verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And it took a touch from God to revive him again. If there wasn't any hint of embarrassment in John's reaction, he was simply overwhelmed by the glory of the figure. Now, you need to understand, I think, why John's reaction to the vision and our reaction to the drawings uh, are so different. And even why when we read this, uh, we, we don't feel quite the same way we did. It really has to do with the limitation of language. The artists fail because they miss the simile. They, 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 the device of describing one thing by using another. And so they draw something that turns out kind of to be a monster. But, but more than that, there just really are not words in the language of men to describe what John saw. He has to speak in similes. That is, he has to tell us what it was like. And he says that over and over again. It was like. And John uses images of things that we've seen to try to give us some idea of what he saw. And so you might get an idea of what he was up against if you were to imagine trying to describe color to a blind man. Or maybe even simpler, try to describe how something tastes to someone. Uh, and have you ever noticed, I mean, how often everything tastes like chicken, with the possible exception of chicken, right? <laughs> and if people want you to eat rattlesnake, they tell you it tastes like chicken. Well, if it tastes like chicken, I'd just as soon eat the chicken, right? But, but you have to describe it somehow, and that's really what... We try to do it, those things. And the same thing was true for John. He saw something, but there just aren't any words to tell us what he saw. So Jesus' feet really weren't molten bronze, but molten bronze was as close as John could come to describing what he saw. Jesus' eyes weren't flames of fire, but... But fire is what he was reminded of when he saw them. And so if ever an artist could, could draw eyes that looked like eyes but reminded one of fire, or a face that was still a face but was shining as bright as the sun on a hot and clear August day, he might capture something of what John saw. And then we wouldn't feel a bit embarrassed. We might even feel a bit overwhelmed. Now, I, I really spent a lot of time talking about this for two reasons. First, this 
is the central figure in the vision and central figure in the book, right? And the entire Bible. But, uh, but I also want you to know that if you had seen what John had seen, you would have been overwhelmed too, as we all will one day when we finally do see Jesus face to face. So Jesus is a central figure here. But if we're careful, we're going to notice that there are really three things going on here, three things that are happening in this vision as John first sees it. And those three things are really important, even though when we first see them, we may not kind of see it, get it, understand it. But before we look at that action that's happening, I want to look briefly at John's description of Jesus. So I've mentioned it before, but when it comes to symbols, there really are different ways we can understand what they're symbolizing. Some things we just know intuitively. We just simply know what they mean. They're, they're just so common that anywhere in the world, if you use that symbol, people understand what you're talking about. It. And, and, and then there are some things we can understand because history or archaeology has brought to light how the people in the day that the letter was written used those symbols. And, and then there are some symbols that the Bible simply tells us what it means right there at the symbol, or we we learn about it in another place in the scriptures. And then there's sometimes we just don't know, and so we can speculate that when we do that, we really ought to remember that it's just that. It's our speculation. And so with that reminder, I want to look at the beginning, uh, again, in, in the middle of verse 13, where we read that Jesus was dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash on his chest. Now, I have to tell you, all commentators agree that this really indicates, at the very least, a person of great significance. But it really likely indicates more than that. Many believe, and I, along with them, that the robe and the sash around the chest is the garb of the high priest. And Jesus is, as we know, our high priest who always makes intercession for us. And I, and I think that he's dressed in the garb of the high priest of heaven. And then John goes on in, to tell us in the beginning of verse 14, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. My hair isn't quite there yet. Brother Dix is, uh, is there. But mine isn't quite. But, but this hair was white like snow. It was just as pure as could be. And, and here it's the Old Testament that gives us the meaning. It's a symbol of deity. See, Jesus uh, was God. And that concept is found, it's established in the book of Daniel where we read this. As I looked, thrones were set in place in the Ancient of Days, which is God took his seat and his clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head was white like wool and though it's a symbol it's a clear declaration of the truth that Jesus is God now we've already mentioned that his eyes were bright like blazing fire and I have to tell you that is not Superman's heat vision at least they think it was Superman that could look at something and make it get hot uh, but it, it's really more like Superman's x-ray vision. See, it tells us that Jesus sees everything. There's nothing which escapes his vision. And I think this is simply intuitive. I think we read that about the blazing eyes and we just know it. 
for me, it's intuitive. But I have to tell you, it's built on years of studying the Scripture. And I think that's what those blazing eyes mean. He sees it all. And then when it comes to his feet, and by the way, if you don't realize that he's barefoot in the picture here, he doesn't have shoes on. He's talking about his sexual feet. Uh, and I think that's another indication that he was um, dressed in the garb of the high priest because the high priest in the Holy of Holies didn't wear any shoes. And, uh, and so these feet are like bronze glowing in the furnace. And most commentators don't offer any explanation of this, and the one or two that did uh, seemed to me really to miss the mark. Their ideas didn't seem to fit with the overall theme that we read here, and they, they really were making, I think, a stretch. There is one thing that we can say for sure, and that is they are not feet of clay which comes from another vision in the book of Daniel where the statue was gold at the top but his feet were clay mixed with iron and that's really a symbol of, of, um, of something that is going to collapse and to fall but when Jesus' feet are solid they're whole and they're sturdy and he's never going to fall I think it also indicates that he went through the furnace of affliction as he walked on this earth just as his people do. There are two more references of the, to the deity of Jesus. At the end of verse 15, we're told, his voice was like the sound of rushing waters, and the Bible often uses that to describe the voice of God. And then at the end of verse 16, his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance, again, pointing to the truth of the Trinity. So now we've examined the figure as he stands there, and what we want to do now is we want to turn to the action which we find here. And it may not be apparent at first, but it is there, and you'll see it if you carefully consider the scene. The three things that are happening in the vision are this. Jesus is holding seven stars in his right hand, and he's standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands. And finally, he's speaking a powerful message. And we're going to look at each of those things in turn um, to try to understand their meaning in the vision. And we really need all those three of those things to truly understand what's happening here. So first, in this vision, Jesus is speaking a powerful message. And so in verse 16, John says, coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. And again, John isn't telling us what Jesus looked like. He's telling us what he's doing. And what he's doing is he's speaking a powerful message. It's a picture language to tell us just that, that, that Jesus is speaking God's word to those churches that he has written to and to us here in this church. And as we're going to see later in this study, the message helps the churches become all they can be, all that they should be. And again, this isn't the first place that we've seen God's word referred to as a double-edged sword. In the book of Hebrews, we read this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in creation is hidden from God's sight, his blazing eyes. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That double-edged sword represents the word 
of God. And it's a powerful message that Jesus speaks. So this glorious figure here, the Lord Jesus Christ, is speaking God's powerful word to the churches. And the first that's the first thing going on in the vision. And now in the other two things that we're going to look at, we suspect, and they are symbols. And, and we don't have to guess at what these things stand for. We're told what they are in verse 20. And so we read there, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, so in that vision, Jesus is pictured as being surrounded by these seven churches, and he's pictured as holding the angels of the churches in his right hand, which really doesn't have its full impact until we understand that the word angel means messenger. So Jesus is holding in his right hand the messengers of the church, or said in another way, he's holding pastors of the churches in his right hand. I have to tell you, some commentators think that it's an actual angel there for each church, kind of like a guardian angel for the churches as as we have guardian angels, But, but that really doesn't make much sense that John would write to an angel and And really, what post office would he use to deliver that letter? Anyway, even if he was talking to an angel, the angel still has to get the message somehow to the church. And the most likely avenue for that to happen would be the pastor. But that word angel, in the sense of messenger, is used to people in the New Testament. John the Baptist is referred to as an angel in the prophecy of Isaiah. And the Baptist, while he was in prison, sent angels to Jesus to ask him some questions. And Jesus sent such messengers, his disciples, while he was making his last journey to Jerusalem to the Samaritan towns in front of him. So it really shouldn't surprise us at finding the term used here. I have to tell you, the black church accepts this interpretation without any question. Pastors in black churches are often referred to as the angel of the church. And many, myself included, believe that is what is being demonstrated here. And I have to tell you, I sure hope it is. I really do. Because if I'm up here and I'm just telling you my own words and my own thoughts, I think we're all in trouble. But if we're held in God's right hand, if pastors are there, then the message in some manner is God's message to his people. I believe it is a particular message to a particular people at a particular place and a particular time. It's God's message. It's not God's word like what we have here, but it's a message from God to his people. And that's why being part of a, of a local congregation is so important. God speaks to us where we are. Now I have to tell you that I know that uh, for a pastor to say what I just said can sound awfully self-serving and, um, and I want to talk about that in a minute. But first, I want to make sure we understand what the vision is trying to show us. Jesus holds the pastors in his right hands just as I would hold a pencil or a pen in my right hand. 
And since the right hand is, uh, is symbolic, it's the hand that people use when they have to do their most exacting and detailed work because most people are right-handed. And so the first thing I want to say in my defense for, for making the statement I said, for having the gall to say that I, along with all other pastors, are, are held in God's right hand, besides the fact that I really think that's what the Scripture teaches, is that pastors, I, we're just mere tools. We're nothing more than a pen or a pencil, and it's the hand that holds that tool. That's where the real skill lies. The tool itself is useless by itself. The real power is in the hand that wields it. And pastor is not better than anyone else. He is simply called by God to a specific task. He's a mere tool in the hand of God. And pastor is, after all, and foremost, uh, merely a messenger. And it really does us good, we who preach the word of God, to remember that at one time, anyway, in the Old Testament, God used the jackass, uh, uh, an actual donkey, to deliver his message. And the truth is, if most pastors are honest, they'll tell you that there are times when we resemble a donkey more than we do a saint. And yet God can still use us. So nevertheless, with all of our faults, God holds a pastor in his right hand as a tool to do his work to deliver his message. Now, of course, there are people who will uh, use that truth to serve themselves. Uh, it's true, they'll do it, and we need to understand that. And all things being as they should, when pastors are preaching, he's delivering God's message, however poorly or nicely it might be wrapped up. But there are those who would use that to twist it deliberately otherwise to further their own ends. And there are people in the congregations who put pastors on pedestals and a wise pastor gets off of them as soon as he's put up there. There is a way you can know that truth. You can know when the truth is being distorted. And that is whenever the messenger becomes more important than the message he brings, whenever he becomes more important than the people to whom he's writing, Whenever he becomes more important than the Lord himself, you know that something unholy is beginning to happen. So you have to be on your guard. So in this vision, we see the glorious Lord Jesus Christ speaking a powerful message to his churches. And he's holding the pastors, the messengers, in his right hand. But it's really the final thing which is going on here that in many ways is the most interesting, and that is Jesus' is standing among the lampstands. And, and this vision really comes into its sharpest focus when we remember what a lampstand is for. So like all other lights, its purpose is to dispel darkness and cast its light so we can see. But the lampstands really are more like lights in a museum than an ordinary overhead light in your kitchen. See, that light in your kitchen um, is there so you can see whatever's there, but the lights in the museum are different. So I, I lived in Denver while I was going to seminary, and I lit, worked for two very wealthy families. And one family, they collected art, Impressionist art, I think, from the 18th century. And they had millions of dollars of art in their house and the house was built to display that art 
The walls were gray, the floors were gray brick, and they had track lighting over every one of the pictures that were there. And one day while I was there mopping those brick floors, which the maid couldn't do, the curator of the Art Museum of Denver came to their house. And he took time and he adjusted that track lighting so that the light fell on that picture in the best way to bring out more clearly the beauty, the brushstrokes of that picture. In a museum, each light is placed in order to bring out that picture, to make it stand out, to display it. And just so, Jesus Christ is in the middle of those lampstands that the world can see his glory by the light that his church casts. Yes, the church does dispel darkness, and you can see a lot of things by the light. But its main reason for being is to illuminate, to reveal more clearly our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice something else here. It's not just one lamp. It's not just one church. It takes all seven of them. Seven means all of them. The brighter we shine, the brighter other churches shine, the more clearly the world will be able to see our Lord. And that's why we ought to pray for other churches and even other denominations. See, this vision helps us to understand something. It helps us to understand part of the relationship between pastors and churches and messages in our Lord. Jesus, who's walked through affliction with us and before us, who sees all that there is to see, knowing all that there is to know, our high priest in heaven who is always interceding for us, who is God in the flesh, who died and came to life again, and who lives forever and ever, and who delivers people from death and hell. Our glorious Lord Jesus Christ speaks powerful messages to his church using everyday people, simple men, or pastors. He does that so that we can become all that we should become. So that we can reveal him to a dark and dying world. You are the light of the world. We or sitting on a hill that cannot be hidden. Let's live in such a way to point others to Jesus Christ. No matter what it costs. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace and goodness to us. Thank you that there's nothing we've ever faced that you aren't aware of, that you haven't in your own way faced through your Son. Thank you, Lord, that you're on our side, that you really do want the best for us. 
even when you speak hard words, it's because you love us. Help us, Lord, to live in a way that shows we understand and that we love you. Help the world lost around us to see Christ both in this body and in us as individuals as we make our way through this life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.